Well, come on back, and um, you're going to open your Bibles right to the end of chapter 39 of the book of Jeremiah, uh, heading into chapter 40. And we are in a fascinating piece or period of the book. We've now shifted gears. We're going to look at, as Jerusalem, Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, main city Jerusalem, it has been ransacked. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians uh, dealt Jerusalem the third and final blow and decimated the city and took out people uh, up into Babylon, the Chaldeans up to Babylon. And yet, listen to this, this almost just preaches itself right here. There are some Jews who are left, and the Jews who are left, the Jewish people who are left, Look, read in verse 39 with me. Verse 10, but Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah the poor people who had nothing, and by the way, the Babylonian there, gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. But think about it, the poor and needy, the least of these, the ones who aren't the popular ones, the ones who didn't have the greatest intellect, the ones who didn't have the greatest amounts of money or image or power or anything of that nature, the Babylonians left there. And now, for, from chapter 40 through 45 of Jeremiah, look, watch this, God in his care and tenderness is going to tell the story of how he cared for the people who didn't go to Babylon. Are you catching this? Because I don't know if you recall, but because of all the sins that the people of Judah committed, the Lord said through Jeremiah, no, no, the Babylonians are for sure going to institute judgment against our land, and they're going to take you to Babylon. And you need to lean into that chastening. So now that is sort of in progress happening. The Jews are being carried to Babylon, but there's this poor and needy group that are sort of just left there. And God has a plan for the, Bab- the, 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 uh, the Jews in Babylonian exile, but he also has a plan and he cares for the ones who were left behind. Are you getting this? You see the compassion and tenderness of the Lord and the heart of the Lord. He tells us for basically five chapters here about the story of the, 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 the Jewish people, the people of God who were left behind, who were poor and needy. And so... When we finished up, I was really hustling through the end of Jeremiah 39, but we see there that Jeremiah, after having been in prison or imprisoned a couple times in different places, now is set free. That's interesting. Store that away. And this Ethiopian guy named Ebed-Melech, a servant of the king, uh, basically, you know, lowered down some equipment and pulled him up out of a pit to sort of get and free Jeremiah. And I want you to read here with me, verse 18, for I will surely deliver you and you shall not fall by the sword, the Lord is saying to this Ebed-Melech, but your life shall be as a prize to you. Why? Watch this. Watch this. There's grace in the Old Testament. And it's still the same thing. Why is God involved in working in our lives? Because of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, you have been saved through trust or faith. And here it is. Look at this. This one, this outsider, this one who wasn't of the people of God necessarily or a Jew. He was an Ethiopian, but that doesn't matter to the Lord. And he is going to be saved because he put his trust in the Lord. What a picture. And that's where we left off, sort of, right? Now watch this. Watch what happens now. This is the story of the Jews who didn't go to Babylon. I mean, how would you feel? I mean, you sort of feel good, because who would want to move 
and be carted off to Babylon. I mean, that would sort of feel good. And yet, wouldn't it be sort of like, well, what's wrong with us? Babylonians didn't even see fit to take us. And so you have all these emotions that probably are firing through the synapses of, our brain, or of their brains and in their hearts here. And that's where we start. Jeremiah chapter 40. And then the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah. That's about five miles north of Jerusalem, when he had taken him bound in chains among all who were carried away captive from Jerusalem and Judah, who were carried away captive to Babylon. Now, some people get really confused because in chapter 39, he was just freed. But it doesn't really seem too confusing to me. This Ramah place, which is about five miles north of Jerusalem, it appears to be sort of a staging area for all the uh, exiles who are going to be deported to Babylon. And so he's freed in chapter 39, but apparently as he's getting mixed up with the people who are being moved up to Ramah, he gets chained again. That's Jeremiah, right? And this guy, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah. And when he had taken him bound in chains among all who were carried away captive uh, from Jerusalem, Judah, who were carried away captive to Babylon. And the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God has pronounced this doom on this place. Now, I want you to know who's speaking here. It makes a difference. It's a Babylonian soldier. He's saying to Jeremiah, and maybe in earshot of some of the people, that the Lord your God has pronounced this doom on this place. Now the Lord has brought it and has done just as he said, because you people, that's one thing never to say as a pastor, right? So I laugh when I hear it read. You people. But here he says it. He says, because you people have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed his voice. Therefore, this thing has come upon you. Isn't that fascinating? Here is a Babylonian soldier that knew the words and the judgments that were told by God through Jeremiah, and he knew them. So, in other words, this is sort of an enemy repeating back to Jeremiah why the people are in bondage and are headed for exile. Do you get that? And remember, what is God doing with the, uh, the Jewish nation at this time? Well, God is showing through the Old Testament, right? And, and even now, I mean, God's showing his love to the world through a peewee little country on the Mediterranean Sea. It wouldn't be the one I'd pick or you'd pick. We'd pick big ones like Russia or Africa or the United States. The Lord picked this little peewee little country right there on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And throughout the entire Old Testament, he's showing off God's love through a people. And including when their people fall into hard times. When the people fall into judgment in hard times. You see, it's an opportunity for God, watch this, to display his glory to a world that may never otherwise know it. Are you getting that? And so here, this guard somehow, some way, knows the word and has been paying attention. And it's almost as if he's saying, my goodness, people, why didn't you listen to your God? He told you through this prophet, Jeremiah, and now he's doing just what he said he would do. What's the problem? It's a good word here. God uses a, a, a commander or a captain of the guard from the enemy. And so he says it. And so then verse 4, he says, Now look, I free you this day from the change that were on your hands, or on your hand. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, well, come, and I'll look after you. But if it seems wrong for you to come with me to Babylon, well, remain here. See, all the land is before you wherever it seems good and convenient for you to go. Go there. 
You see, this is interesting because the other Jewish folks had no choice. Are you catching that? You either were in the exile and headed up to Ramah for the deportation staging and then the journey, or you were left behind. You had no choice. But here, the captain of the guard gives Jeremiah a choice. Now, folks, think about the choice. This man has been ministering for 40 years to people who won't listen, or 40 plus years, or a long time, for people who won't listen. Now, he does love them dearly. They're his people, but he knows that if he goes to Babylon, he's in good graces with the military and the king and the cabinet. And if he goes to Babylon, sure, it's going to be a long, hard trip, but if he gets there, most likely, apparently based on what's happened here in the last couple chapters, he's going to be treated okay. Maybe even better than okay. Are you getting me? And so it seems to be, it might be, it could be, that it would be really much more advantageous materially, comfort-wise, convenience-wise, entertainment-wise, access-wise. Isn't it great when you have access in powerful places? Well, it seems like that maybe... If he would just go up to Babylon and he has the choice, everything would be good for him. But look at this. While Jeremiah had not yet gone back, verse 5, Nebuzaradan said, Go back to Gigdalia, the son of Ahakam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has made governor over the cities of Judah. Are you catching that? Gedaliah, I don't know how you say it, but Gedaliah, that's how I think you might say it. Gedaliah, okay? Go back to Gedaliah, the son of Ahakim, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has made governor over the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people, or go wherever it seems convenient for you to go. Well, it seems to me, just reading through this, it would be much more convenient, maybe not the trip, but dealing with uh, the access and the materials and the materialism, and even uh, uh, just being up there, it just seems like he would be treated better. Go where you seems convenient. So the captain of the guard gave him rations and a gift and let him go. And then watch this. Hmm. Well, Jeremiah went to Gedaliah. How did I say it again? Gedaliah, the son of Ahakim, to Mitzpah and dwelt with him among the people who were left in the land. The poor and the needy, and the people who weren't as intellectually savvy, and the people who maybe were cast-offs, and the people who weren't as famous, and the people who weren't as popular. And here this man went to dwell with them. Now that's fascinating. Now you, you got to remember a couple things. One thing is there's already a prophet or has been a prophet in the Babylonian political structure. Do you know who that was? Yeah, you do. Daniel. And there's already and has been a prophet out in the Babylonian wilderness. Do you know who that is? Yes, you do. Ezekiel. So maybe what's happening here, along with the heart of a shepherd, is he knows that people are up there ministering, but who's going to minister to these people? And of course, he does have this heart of the shepherd. I want you to uh, remember now taking this lesson and thinking about the kingdoms we build. You know what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8, right? Our Jesus, our Jesus, our Savior, our all in all, the captain of our salvation. Think about that. He's, He's our commander. He was so rich, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 tells us. He was rich, the richest of the rich, in heaven with the Father and the Spirit and all the riches available to him for our sakes, not just to do it, for your sake, for our sakes, he became poor. 
Oh, yes, Psalm 22 tells us when speaking about the Messiah, doesn't it? He became lower than a worm. (laughs) And he did it willfully and joyfully. Let me show you something over in Hebrews 11. Go, Go there. Go to Hebrews 11 and look up verses, or start at verse 24. Let's read about Moses, a leader of the people of God. By faith, verse 24, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Boy, would it have been tempting to do that. Power, palaces, money, cars, riches, fame. Never had to work a day in his life. Always have access. Always at the most popular sporting events, plays, could go any city he wanted and be treated, anything he wanted, anything, if he would just say he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater, than, uh, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. That's the heavenly perspective. Okay, that's Moses. We've seen Jesus. Turn over with me to John chapter 10. Go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 in verses 11 through 13. John chapter 10 and verses 11 through 13. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. It's right there in red letters. It's a joke. Anyway, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming. And leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and doesn't care about his sheep. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. And look, and am known by my own. See, that's powerful. Why? Turn over here. Jeremiah was no hireling, folks. He cared. Sometimes the Bible calls you and I, or excuse me, sometimes God calls us (laughs) to something that makes absolutely, positively, 100% no sense. I mean, you got the way of convenience and the way of comfort and the way of this, and the way of that, and the whole world, everybody at your work, everybody at your extracurricular, everybody's saying, go that way. Come on, are you really not going to go that way? But the Lord's called us because we care for people. We're not hirelings with people. We really love people. Even when they injure us, we still love them. Because we're not hirelings, we're, we're shepherds who, who care in, in a sense. You, you know what I mean? And, and I say that because of this really pillar, fa- famous pillar passage or chapter of the Bible. How can I say that? Well, look in Philippians. Just go over there with me and go to chapter 2. You say, therefore, verse 1, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection, mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. I read that and go, wow, man, I need a Savior there, buddy. I need supernatural resurrection power the Spirit in my life producing this because 
I want to do that, but sometimes I'm unable in my own strength, or all the time I'm unable in my own strength, to be in the fellowship. It must be spiritual, notice there. And then look, watch this. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) But in loveliness of mind, (laughs) let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not for your own interests, but for the interests of others. This is describing how a Christian is by the Holy Spirit. But watch. And you go, man, that looks hard. Wow, that looks difficult. And then you get to verse 5 and you go, oh. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, in other words, he was rich, rich, 2 Corinthians, who, being in the form of God, did, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. This was God himself, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And then it says, God has highly exalted him. Here's the point. Go back to Jeremiah 40. The people of God... Don't concern themselves with convenience and comfort and image and power and blah, 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 blah. Because here's why. When you surrendered your life to Christ and counted on his finished work at the cross and his resurrection, bang, what came into your life was access, his very life to come into your life to make you not be a hireling. You just don't love people anymore falsely. You know, if somebody injures you or uh, makes a mistake or something in your life, or maybe they, you ever had somebody say, well, I deserve better than that. Well, listen now, you became a bondservant like Jesus. You have no reputation. <laughs> You're a servant like I am. How can they injure us? We're dying to ourself. And here we see Jeremiah. I mean, you're reading along, at least I am, and I'm like, yep, he's going to Babylon for sure. And he goes, no, nope, I'm, I'm going to stay here with these guys and gals. Why? Because he had the heart of God. And that's what we are. We're not called to comfort. We're called to it, whatever the Lord has for us. Okay, you want me to go there, Lord? Okay, I'll do it. You want me to not watch the Steelers this week? I'm la- you're laughing about this, but man, people stay home and don't do stuff because there's a football game on or uh, there's uh, music to do or you have to build your kingdom in some way and you're, you're, you're reluctant to go help somebody. And here, we're not hirelings. That's what hirelings do. Hirelings only do things when it's convenient for them. Shepherds, or the heart of Christ, people like Christ, I'm the good shepherd, they do it at a cost to them. Here, Jeremiah does it and gives us a great lesson. He goes among the people who were left in the land. You read that and you go, man, he got the short end of the stick. But see, Jeremiah couldn't do anything else. He was called to it. He had the heart of God. And when all the captains, verse 7 of the armies who were in the fields, they and their men heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah, the son of Ahikim, governor in the land, and had committed to him men, women, children, and the poorest of the land who had not been carried away captive to Babylon. Then they came to Gedaliah at Mitzpah. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but Gedaliah is from a family of Shaphan. We went through his family last time, and he grew up some sons, and Gedaliah, who, godly sons, who had different roles there in uh, Judah. And now this Gedaliah is going to be appointed the governor of the Jewish remnant in Jerusalem. You see it right there. And so he's part of this family that worships the Lord. And they come to Mitzbah, and then this guy named Ishmael, 
the son of Nethaniah, Johanan and Jonathan, the sons of Korea, Sariah, the son of whatever, the sons of Ephi, the Nethophite, and Jezaniah, the son of Mahakathite, <laughs> they and their men, and Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, took an oath before them and their men, saying, don't be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it's going to be well with you, Remember? Don't be freaked out about that. That's what God, through Jeremiah, had told them to do. You're going to be judged. Go up there and make a life and make an impact. As for me, I will indeed dwell at Mitzpah and serve the Chaldeans who come to us. But you gather wine and summer fruit and oil. Put them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. Likewise, when all the Jews were in Moab among the Ammonites in Edom. Now, folks... You just read three enemies of the Lord, or of the God's people. You get that? They always were uh, fighting uh, with the people of God, and they lived on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So when all the Jews who were in Moab among the Anamites in Edom and who were in all the countries heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant of Judah and that he had set over them Gedaliah, the son of Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, then all the Jews returned out of all the places where they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mitzpah and gathered wine and summer fruit in abundance. These were the people who were hiding out from the Babylonians. You get it? So you had the people who were left and the scaredy cats. And I probably would have been a scaredy cat, so I'm not making fun. But these were the people who fled, right? They hid out, and now they've come back. Now watch this strange story. So moreover, Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces that were in the fields came to Gedaliah at Mitzpah and said to him, Do you certainly know that Baalus, the king of Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to murder you? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, did not believe them. Then Johanan, the son of Kerioth, spoke secretly to Gedaliah in Mitzpah, saying, Let me go, please, and I will kill Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. So here you have, watch this, the Jewish <laughs> appointed governor by the Babylonians and another Jewish sect wants to assassinate him. And that's Gedaliah. And Gedaliah's friend here, one of the other captains, or, you know, among the military, Johanan says, let me take care of this guy for you. We'll, we'll just get rid of him and everything will be okay. Why should he murder you so that all the Jews who are gathered to you would be scattered and the remnant in Judah perish? Well, watch this. But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikim, said to Johanan, the son of Korea, you shall not do this thing, for you speak falsely concerning Ishmael. Now it came to pass, chapter 41, in the seventh month, that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, now this is important. This is the important part. You could run by this and you go, oh, shoot. Of the royal family, Ishmael is of the royal family, and the royal families. Famous king was named David. You understand that? So Ishmael is from the family of David. And of the officers of the king, he came with ten men to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikim, at Mitzpah, and there they ate bread together. There, there's hospitality here with the person who is rumored to want to assassinate him. Are you getting this? Then Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the ten men who were with him arose and struck Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword and killed him. It actually happened. Whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land, Ishmael also struck down all the Jews who were with him, that is with Gedaliah at Mitzpah and the Chaldeans who were found there, the men of war. Now, I got a couple points. Gedaliah. You know, in the, in the New Testament, in the famous love chapter, the Bible tells us to not assume things about people. Love bears all things. Love 
hopes all things. Love believes all things. Anybody ever heard that? Well, see, what happens is, is when somebody says a rumor about you, <laughs> people who really love don't get defensive and strike back immediately. Because you love them, and you love people, and you're not a hireling, you're a shepherd. Or at least you have the shepherd's heart. You get what I'm saying? And, and so you're a person who has supernatural love. And what supernatural love does, it, it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things. So when you hear a rumor, you see, you don't just jump ahead. And so Gedaliah on one hand is doing the right thing. But Gedaliah on the other hand is doing a wrong thing because you balance that love. You bear all things, hope all things, believe all things. With what? The Bible tells you to be as wise as a serpent, but as gentle as a dove. So how could he tell if it was true or not? Well, there's one thing clearly missing that you and I on this side of the cross, if we're presented with something like this, Gedaliah did not do. He didn't go to the Lord in prayer. He just sort of said, well, come on. I mean, really? They're going to kill me? I mean, I've been appointed by the Babylonian people. I mean, if they do me in, they're done. And yet he didn't sort of go to the Lord and entrust the Lord with these things and seek the Lord. We, folks, do we really believe that the Lord is everything to us? Well, how come... Is it, <laughs> that's terrible grammar, why is it that we fail to take so many things to the Lord? Why, why is it? Not because of duty, earning your way to the Lord. No, of course it's not duty. But as we navigate this life, who here over the last month has been under pressure? Raise your hand. How about grief? How about um, perplexed about something? How about angry about something, mad about something, and you just didn't know which way to go or turn, right? Well, the Lord's there. And here we see a real lack of Gedaliah in an important role, not taking this to the Lord and discerning, well, I'm, I know, Lord, that you've asked me to bear all things, hope all things, believe all things in people. And these are sort of rumors, but yet, Lord, I want to be wise because I want to protect the people and do what you've asked me to do. So, Lord, help here because I have no idea what to do. He never does any of that. And we see here then switching gears. Well, before I switch gears, look at the result, folks. I, this isn't something that should scare you or anything. But... He comes face to face with a serial killer. And that's what he's coming face to face with. Watch this. This son, this Ishmael, is from the royal family of David. So he thinks that his line should always be in charge in that country. You get it? Because God's made a covenant with the line of David that they should always be on the throne. Of course, that's weird because they're in exile and some are left over, but he, he has now let jealousy overtake him. And the Bible tells us, doesn't he, for those who are in love with the Lord and the Lord loves them in Hebrews 12, 15, it says, don't let any root of bitterness take hold. Don't let any, he, he, just be honest. Have you gotten bitter with people this week? Yeah, me too, man. You just root that out. Just ask the Lord to forgive us for that and just to walk away from that and ask the Lord to fill us because watch what this bitterness does. He goes and kills with 10 men. He goes in there and under false pretenses and hypocrisy, he goes and he's invited to a meal and he's all nicey-nice during the meal. But once he's got his fill, bang, he murders the guy. They eat bread together. Then he... He and the ten men get up and attack Gedaliah, the son of Shaphan, who's from a godly family, folks, with the sword and killed him. And this is the king of Babylon's appointee. And Ishmael also struck down all the Jews who were with him. 
That is with Gedaliah and the Chaldeans who were found there, the men of war. Watch this. And then it happened, verse 4, on the second day after he had killed Gedaliah, when as yet no one knew it, that certain men came from Shechem, from Shiloh, from Samaria. Eighty men with their beards shaved and their clothes torn, having cut themselves, which, by the way, in Leviticus was forbidden, and with offerings, which is sort of strange because the city's wrecked. You can't offer. But anyway, here they come to bring them to the house of the Lord. Now Ishmael, verse 6, the son of Nethaniah, went out from Mitzbah to meet them. Watch. He's bitter, folks. Bitter has driven him to assassinate a bunch of people. And now these people who are confused and mixed up and just hoping to worship but are misplaced, they come down the road, and he went out from Mitzvah, Ishmael did, weeping. He's faking it. He's really putting on a show, and as he went along, it happened as he met them that he said to them, hey, come to Gedaliah, the son of Aachim. So it was when they came into the midst of the city that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, killed them. And he cast them into the midst of a pit, and the men who were with him, but ten men were found among them who said to Ishmael, hey, don't kill us. We have treasures of wheat, barley, oil, and honey in the field. So he desisted and did not kill them among their brethren. Now the pit into which Ishmael had cast all the dead bodies of the men whom he had slain because of Gedaliah was the one Asa the king had made for fear of Baasha, king of Israel. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, filled it with the slain. I mean, this is a serial killer. And then Ishmael carried away captive all the rest of the people who were in Mitzpah, the king's daughters and all the people who remained in Mitzpah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. He takes away all these people. And Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, carried them away captive and departed to go over to the Ammonites, the enemies of God. And you say, well, come on now. All right, great story. Well, think about this. This all followed a root of bitterness. <laughs> a slight. He felt like he deserved something that somebody else got. And he was disappointed and hurt, and it led to mass murder. You say, well, come on, man. I've never murdered anyone. Yeah, but you've hated somebody, and so have I. And it happens when we get a root of bitterness in our soul, in our hearts, and we're bitter towards people. I want to know, seriously, I want you to check your heart. I'm going to check mine right now. Is there some bitterness we're holding on to against somebody? Is there somebody you have a grudge with, a slight with? Is there? Here, unless we confess our sins and repent and ask the Lord to fill us with our love for that person, folks, it could lead to murder. I don't mean this kind of murder. But this hateful murder of just hating somebody and being in that place where you couldn't forgive them, here it's just devastating. It devastates people. But when, verse 11, Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the captains of the forces that were with them heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had done, they took all the men and went to fight with Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and they found him by the great pool that is in Gibeon. That's about six miles northwest of Jerusalem, so very close to Ramah and Mitzpah and all those places. So it was when all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the captains of the forces who were with them, that they were glad. <laughs> you get that? Uh, they were glad. And then all the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mitzpah turned around and came back and went to Johanan, the son of Kareah. But Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. So, Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces that were with him, took from Mitzpah all the rest of the people whom he had covered from Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, after he had murdered Gedaliah, the son of Aachim, the mighty men of war, and the women, and the children, and the eunuchs whom he had brought back from Gibeon. And they departed and dwelt in the habitation of Chimham, which is near Bethlehem. Watch this. This is sad. As they went on their way to Egypt, 
because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had murdered Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor in the land. Now watch, what is Egypt always a picture of in the Bible? Always, always, always. It's a picture of the flesh and being in bondage. Remember, all those years ago, the Israelites were in bondage and couldn't free themselves and they needed a miracle and you know the story and the Passover happened and that's the reason they were delivered. Wow. The blood over the doorpost is what saved them, the blood of the lamb. And they had to make haste and they ran and they got to the Red Sea and they're like, now what do we do? And the Red Sea opens and they move through it and then it closes behind, which is fascinating because That's a picture of what we as Christians are to do. As we move out in our salvation, we're to close the world behind us and not to go back. But what's fascinating is many of the Old Testament saints had a propensity and a lure, or they were enticed to run back to Egypt when things sort of got out of control. And here, look at this. They've already made up their mind to run to Egypt for safety. Are you getting that? You know, another one of the prophets said, don't go ever to Egypt because you're going to be trusting in horses and chariots and your own flesh. If you return to Egypt, that's what it will turn you into is somebody who lives according to the flesh and not according to the spirit. But these folks, as they went on their way to Egypt... Remember now, they had been set up in their land. They were the left-behind people, the people who didn't matter, so to speak. But God still gave them that summer fruit that he provided for them. And and think about it. It was God's remnant. So, So not only did God provide for them, but God withheld something that could have happened to them, and that's death. They survived, and they were in the land. So God had shown them grace and mercy, and yet these people had already made their mind up when the tough got going and the things were hard and you didn't know where to turn. I'm just going to run back to Egypt. Man, that's what we do, don't we? When somebody offends us, the bitterness... See, because I know how to talk in a fight, (laughs) not a fight. I know my flesh, buddy, because I know. I've been trained to argue, and I sort of like it, fleshly-wise. It appeals there. It's easy for me to get into that mode. Anybody, does it resonate with anybody? Or whatever. I'm just using my example. There might be other examples of things that when the going get tough, you run to that is fleshly. Here they've already made up their mind. But why had they made up their mind? There's a big word here, or, or one word. It was because of fear. They decided that Okay, well, we we like being people of God, but he sort of doesn't know what he's doing. So I'm going to just handle it myself and get back to where I'm comfortable and feel good. Remember, he hasn't called us to the comfortable. He hasn't called us to the convenient. There's going to be times you're going to look around and you're going to go, I don't know. Things are sort of falling apart or things don't make sense. And you're right there at the fork in the road. Do you get it? You can just go right back to Egypt or you can choose to trust in the Lord. Well, here, watch this. They are really scared. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy, right, For us who are spiritual, walking by the Spirit, Spirit Spirit-filled people, 
He doesn't give us a spirit of fear. He gives us a spirit of self-control, power, his power. Well, all the captains, chapter 42, of the forces of Johanan, the son of Korea, Jeziah, the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest, watch this, came near and say to Jeremiah the prophet, hey, hey, Jeremiah, how about you let our petition be acceptable to you and pray for us to the Lord note it, your God. What? Pray for us to the Lord your God, for all this remnant, since we are left, but a few of many, as you can see, that the Lord, watch this, your God, may show us the way in which we should walk and the thing which we should do. It's a fantastic suggestion for a prayer, folks. What a great prayer. We should pray this in the mornings, shouldn't we? Hey, God, Lord, thank you so much. Would you show me the way today, the way in which I should walk, and tell me what to do? Show me where to go and what to do. What, what, a, what a great prayer. But the problem for them was it wasn't their prayer. They were hanging on the prayer of the godly person, Jeremiah. You know, prayer is an indication that he is your God personally. Not your God as they're using here, but you, your own God. Are you a person who takes things to the Lord? That's an indication, you see, that you're known by him and you know him, as we read earlier. But here they don't do that. They, they don't do that. They suggest a, a, a fantastic prayer. It's sort of like the prayer that Jesus prayed. Not my will, but your will be done, Lord. Whatever you want. But it wasn't their prayer. And then in verse 4, Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard indeed, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your words, and it shall be that whatever the Lord answers you, I will declare it to you. I'll keep nothing back from you. Now here comes a really silly story. I read this and I go, excuse me, I don't don't think a pastor should probably say this, but I'm going, man, are you guys stupid or something? What are you you doing here? And yet I turn, then it goes, whew, me. Watch this. Is that on the tape? Okay. So they said to Jeremiah, let the Lord be a true and faithful witness between us. If we do not, accor- uh, do, not do according to everything that which the Lord God sends us by you, whether it's pleasing or displeasing, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we send you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord. Now watch. And it happened after 10 days of praying... Ten days that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Then he called Johanan, the son of Korea, all the captains of the forces which were with him, and all the people from the least, even to the greatest, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition uh, before him. If you will still remain in this land, then I will build you and not pull you down, and I'll plant you and not pluck you up. By the way, that's Jeremiah's whole mission in chapter 1. That's what God told him he would be doing. Isn't that interesting? That's a whole sermon, man. I love that sermon. He knew what he was called to do. I think that's important for this, but okay, I won't go down that rabbit trail. But he knew what he was called to do. He remembered it. I know what you're called to do. I know what I'm called to do. It's easy to know. Just read the Bible. You're called to produce much godly fruit, which means you're to glorify God in anything or in everything you do. That's it. There's your job. Well, it happened after 10 days that the word of the Lord came to him. He calls these people together uh, and then says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel there in verse 9, to whom you sent me to present your petition before him. If you still remain in this land, I'll build you and not pull you down. I'll plant you and not pluck you up. For I relent concerning the disaster that I've brought upon you. Don't be afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom you're afraid. Don't be afraid of him, says the Lord, for I am with you. Time out. By the way, if you're afraid, if you're anxious, if you're fearful, if you're stressed, Uh, if you've got lots of other things going on or other different emotions, what is the 
absolute only thing that's going to still your heart and mind and life. It's not just theology. It's the presence of the Lord. And it's always that way. Everywhere in the Bible, when Joshua is scared, what does he say? Hey, don't be scared. I'll be with you. When Joshua, before he gets sent out, Moses is there in the tent of the meeting, and I think it's in uh, Exodus 33, it might be 34, but at the end of that, Moses leaves, and the Bible says that Joshua remained. Why? He wanted to be near the presence of the Lord because he knew what he had to do, and that was sort of scary, and he needed courage. So here he says, for I am with you, and I will show you mercy that he may have mercy on you and cause you to return to your own land. But if you say, we will not dwell in this land, do you know who he's talking to now? He's talking to the people left behind. He's talking about the ones who want to skate to Egypt and not stay in Judah. He's talking to them, and he says, but if you say, we won't dwell in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God, saying, no, but we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor be hungry for bread, and there we will dwell, then hear now the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. If you wholly set your faces to enter Egypt and go to dwell there, then it shall be that the sword which you feared shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. By the way, that happened. That happened in 568, not 86, folks. 568, 567 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar goes down there and knocks them out. But here you go. It shall be that the sword which you feared shall overtake you in the land. The famine of which you were afraid shall follow close after you there in Egypt, and there you shall die. So shall it be with all the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to dwell there. They shall die by the sword, by famine and pestilence, and none of them shall remain or escape from the disaster that I will bring upon them. Why? Because I said it earlier in Isaiah. That's where it is, 31. They were trusting in Egypt and chariots and horses and not giving glory to God. For thus says the Lord, verse 18, as my anger and my fury have been poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so will my fury be poured out on you when you enter Egypt. And you shall be an oath, an astonishment, a curse, and a reproach, and you shall see this place no more. Now this, this to me is fascinating for my, anyway, friends on the different theological scale. Do you notice that the people of God had a choice here? God told them, you go one down path, one path, this is what will happen. You go that path, this is what will happen. They had a choice. And the Lord said in verse 19, or Lord has said concerning you, O remnant of Judah, don't go to Egypt. Now certain, know certainly that I have admonished you this day, for you were hypocrites in your hearts when you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, pray for us to the Lord our God and according to all that the Lord your God says. So declare to us and we will do it. And I have this day declared it to you, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God. In other words, he knew they were out the door to Egypt. Egypt or bust. But you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God or anything which he has sent you by me. Now therefore, verse 22, know certainly that you're going to die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence, in the place where you desire. I'm not going to go through the whole chapter, but I want you to hear this. Now it happened when Jeremiah had stopped speaking to all the people, all the words of the Lord their God, for which the Lord their God had sent him to them, all these words that Azariah, the son of Hoshiah, Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the proud men, listen to this, say to Jeremiah, you're lying. That's what they said. You, you speak falsely. You're lying. Wow. The Lord our God has not sent you to say, do not go to Egypt to dwell there, but Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans. You're a traitor, Jeremiah. Again, you're a traitor. You just want us to be in Babylon. You're a traitor. If we go to Egypt, it'll be fine. You're a liar, Jeremiah. In other words, they disagreed with the, word of the, with the word of God. And we're sort of like that. You ever been like that? I've been like that. Lord, you know, just direct me in your word. Tell me what to do. But please, Lord, don't, let me, don't tell me to go apologize to that person. 
But Lord, I know you're asking me to go to apologize to that person or ask for forgiveness, but Lord, let me just pray it again. Are you really asking me to go apologize to that person? Because I, I, I just don't want to do it. Or maybe uh, you've gone to a church and the, you know, you've, I don't know, committed, committed some sexual sin and the pastor had come and approached you about it and talked to you about it. And you say, well, who are you to talk to me about that? And you go jump down to the next church. You say, well, that guy over there, he's a liar. There's grace. Well, see, we call grace. That's not grace, folks. What the American church oftentimes says is grace is just forgive everything that happens and overlook it and just bury it, and let's all just get along. That's what people in the church a lot of times think grace is. That's not grace. Grace is a training grace. Just read Titus. And it's, it's one that conforms us into the image of Christ. And so when a brother or a sister or somebody comes to you and says, you know what, you really ought to quit cheating on your wife. Oh, who are you to tell me? That's not very graceful. Well, that's the most graceful thing we could do. I mean, that's sort of what we do here. We don't agree with your word in that, Lord. It's not the same. I mean, we live in a modern society. We hook up before we get married now. And that's just the things that we do. And I'll go down to the church, you know, with the fancy lights and the smoke show, and nobody, I'll just blend in. There'll be like 2,000 people down there, and nobody will even ask me about it, and I'll hear the word. And I'll just live this life the other, in any way I want to. That's sort of what we do now is what was happening here. I want to be a follower of you, Lord, but I don't really want to do the hard things that you asked me to do. And I can't think of a more descriptive chapter of the Bible to describe us in the American church. We just go from person to person or from church to church until we get the right answer. And when we get the answer that most match up with the way that our feelings are, the way we feel, not the word of God. No, the, the standard is how I feel about something. And God, you better match up against that. As opposed to God being the standard and we match up against it. See, the people have been doing it since time started. Folks, is there forgiveness? Of course. Nobody's saying that. The Bible just says when we repent, man, it's just getting, living our life out in the light when we repent of the things that we have. Oh, we just hit our welcome back. Is God working on us? Has he got it perfect? Or have we all got it all perfectly worked out and we're all perfect? No, starting with me, no. That's not true. But is the trajectory of our lives towards the Lord? Or are we hiding our heads in the sand about something that we shouldn't be doing or something we should be doing? Well, can we, do we just want to go and just pray the prayer on Sunday and then go live like hell for the rest of the week? That's not what the Lord's calling us to. I mean, they would just pray and pray and then call the one guy who had a right a liar. So, as we close up here tonight, <laughs> what a powerful few chapters, and we'll go through the rest of it next week, but I want you to think about something. You say, well, how does this apply to me today? Well, folks, I don't know if you've seen this over the last two years, but the church has come under increasing hellish attack. If you say that two people should be joined together who are a man and a woman, and that's it, and that's the way, you're And so, I guess I ought to just close up, but <laughs> I get in trouble here. But what, what I'm trying to say here is, 
is that the gates of hell will be unleashed on the church, but it won't prevail. Because God always preserves his remnant. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We come here this evening and we recognize that there is persecution of the church and there is an increasing intolerance of the views that you've set forth, Lord, or the biblical principles that you've set forth here, Lord, here in this modern society. And yet, Lord, what are we to do when we're perplexed, hurt, anxious, grieving, uh, all the different things? We're to take it to you, Lord, and have you work in and through us. Lord, reminding us that we have the shepherd's heart. We're not hirelings anymore. Lord, give us more and more and help us not to have a root of bitterness in our hearts as we move and navigate this life. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you all. And if there's anything we could pray for, you come up. Oh, wait a minute. Yes. Sorry. I got excited. Why don't we bow our heads and pray for the people of Kentucky real quick? And also all the different states that were impacted. But Lord, we do. We lift up all these hurting, grieving families uh, that have lost homes and material things. But even worse than that, they've lost their loved ones, Lord. And we pray for healing and strength for those who are injured. And we pray for um, comfort and peace for those who are grieving. We pray that you'd send many volunteers to help rebuild And Lord, in the middle of it all, we pray that you would be glorified and many would come to know you in a real and saving way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.